Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Put on my mic. Am I recording? Yes. Good. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome to you. Welcome to anybody who's new at home. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to um, talk to a couple people around you, maybe like small group, like three people or something like that. At home, I'm going to put you in uh, breakout rooms on the Zoom. And um, we're going to meditate on and discuss uh, death and the Buddhist uh, teachings around death and the... um, it's a very core, you know, it's a core part of the Buddhist path and teachings and practice and meditation instructions on death. And I'm going to talk about it, but um, uh, here's what I want you to do. I know it's maybe a little abrupt to throw you in, especially if you're here for the first time. Welcome. We don't always do this. Sometimes uh, we just meditate. But um, the question is, oh, so form small groups first. Um, find three people. And try to get a couple people you don't know. Try to try to spread it out a little bit. At least somebody you don't know in your group. And the question here is, you're going to introduce yourselves. And at home, just a simple introduce yourself. And how do you feel about death? Big question in a concise way. Terrified, not sure. How do you feel about death? What do you think about death? How do you feel about death? As an icebreaker, I'll put you in small breakout groups here. Okay, go for it. You guys are open. How do you feel about death?
If you're just uh, tuning in, welcome. Everybody's in breakout groups. And uh, we'll all come back in just a minute. So just hang. If you're just uh, tuning in, everybody's in Everybody at home could mute themselves. Looks like a lot of folks are unmuted, probably from the small breakout groups. Now you're muted, homie. Sorry, Noah. Brilliant. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, well, they heard me. Um, was what I was saying was, uh, before we do the meditation, I talk a little bit about the topic, and um, rather than just throwing you into the meditation on death, like I threw you into the small groups on expressing your feeling or. Uh, and maybe even just noticing, bringing mindfulness to how you feel about even the topic and how, you know, maybe it's unpleasant. I, I imagine a lot of people are like, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's unpleasant for a lot of people. And some people are excited of like, yeah, death. <laughs> I like talking about death. Um, and, uh, you know, our perception of a topic, of a, a teaching, of a one aspect of our reality is so um, uh, differing and uh, based on our own perceptions and um, conditioning and and ideas about it. 
Um, one of the core insights of Buddhism, core teachings of the Buddha, it's called a liberating insight, is that of anicca, which translates as impermanence. Coming to understand that everything is impermanent, everything. Uh, all of our thoughts, all of our sensations, all of our emotions, and this body itself, impermanence of this lifetime. Um, and so it's both internal, every aspect of our perception, external, everything, even the most solid structures uh, with time will crumble, will be impermanent. Uh, some of the most beautiful things in this world you'll see are ruins, where you'll see these uh, the Roman Colosseum or the pyramids or Angkor Wat or whatever it is, where it's like these structures that were like our modern skyscrapers and seem so permanent. And here they are hundreds and hundreds of years later, crumbling, falling apart. Everything's impermanent, even the, the big stuff that doesn't look impermanent at the time. And I want to talk about death because it's one of the core Buddhist teachings and it's just uh, around uh, me right now a lot. Um, this last week, uh, an old friend died that I grew up with, got sober with, um, known for over 30 years and overdosed and died last week and had been in relapse for a long time. And it was not a surprise. It was a little bit of a surprise that he had lasted as long as he had with the way that he was uh, living, um, but still tragic. You're still, um, still sad. And um, I was on a meeting uh, the other night, a uh, recovery meeting, and, um, and it was a meeting I haven't been to before, and I was speaking, and one of the guys that was spoke said, uh, talked about how he and his wife both had uh, been vaccinated, but then they both uh, got COVID, and... Um, uh, she was in the hospital and she was pregnant and that they lost that she's going to survive, but that they lost the baby that they were pregnant with, um, from, from COVID and, um, or from complications associated with, with her having COVID and, um, you know, so like kind of dying before you're even born, um, you know, having, having a life. And then this morning I woke up and I think today is really, I woke up in the first, thing first communication I got when I woke up this morning was from a friend who was informing me that she was on the phone with someone a mutual friend who uh, who died last night and um, who went in for a routine uh, not fairly routine uh, ankle surgery foot surgery um, and then died of an embolism after the surgery like getting your foot fixed and then died and getting their foot fixed. And um, so it's just, a, you know, it's, a, it's always around, right? Death is always around. And then sometimes it like comes in threes like this. Like they kind of got these three. Uh, and the Buddha, uh, part of the Buddhist kind of story mythology is that it was finding out about death that led him to seek enlightenment. He called it one of the heavenly messengers that for uh, I don't want to go too far into this story, but as the story goes, that um, 
the Buddha's parents, Siddhartha's parents, had tried to hide death from him and protect him. And, and uh, as a child, and maybe you get this as a child, you know, as parents, I, I get this a little bit as a parent, where you're not too quick to like, you know, you want to protect your children, you want to create a sort of healthy illusion of safety for them. But his parents went to this extreme where they were like, you know, and they, he, his parents were royalty. And so they said, you know, when we're going out into town, clear away all the old people and all of the sick people. We don't want Siddhartha to ever see anybody that's elderly or sick. We want him to only see young, healthy people so that we can maintain that delusion that like people are like healthy and that life is safe. <laughs> And um, and then at one point in Siddhartha's life, when he was like in his 20s, he uh, escaped without the kind of royal retinue or what, you know, without the uh, people clearing the streets. And he ran into an old person and he saw a corpse for the first time in his life in his 20s. And could you imagine making it all the way to your 20s and not knowing about death? Um, and it was shocking to him. And he already felt like a core sense of dissatisfaction. He felt like, you know, I've got it all. I've got all the money. I've got all the power. I've got all of the privilege. I'm the prince. He's like, but I'm not very happy. I'm not satisfied. There's something missing. I'm not at ease. I'm not, uh, I'm not content. And then when he saw death and it was explained to him in this you know, Indian uh, way that yes, death is normal and we all die. And not only that, but you reincarnate and you die over and over and over and over. It's not just like live out this life and then you're done. It's uh, you're gonna die. You're gonna be reborn and die again. You're gonna be reborn and be subject to sickness and aging and death over and over. And so it was part of that, like, he's like, there's no, there's no end to it. There's no, and the, the Hindu, Brahmanic, Vedic, Indian view was like, no, this is just a sort of eternal cycle. You keep coming back. You keep coming back and you can improve your incarnations and you can be, you know, kind of get to like where you're having kind of good incarnations over and over, but you still have to incarnate and then have sickness and aging and death every time. It was part of the Buddha's inspiration, Siddhartha, where he said, I want to find, is there uh, a way to end this cycle? Is there anything that is deathless? Is there anything within us that isn't subject to rebirth? And it was part of his uh, search for awakening. And when he did come to awakening, he said, um, I've seen the causes of human suffering and it is attachment to impermanent sense pleasures, impermanent uh, views and opinions. It's attachment, it's clinging that causes us to suffer. And the flip side of clinging, which is aversion, trying to control or manipulate or uh, you know, avoid pain, attachment to pleasure, aversion to pain in the simplest terms. And it's also all of this attachment, taking everything personal, attachment to self, selfing, self-centeredness. That is what's causing us suffering. And he saw through that and he woke up 
And as he began to teach, he taught the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. And he, and he um, in the meditation instructions on here's how to end suffering, mindfulness, four foundations of mindfulness, in the first foundation, he said, be mindful of this body. You will understand impermanence directly. Pay attention to your breath as we do. Mindfulness of the breath. Pay attention to the impermanent nature of the breath coming and going. Pay attention to this body as the four elements. You'll be mindful of the uh, earth and air and uh, fluid water and heat temperature and the impermanent nature of those elements, how they're arising and changing. And um, sometimes there's less heat, right? Temperature, sometimes you're cold, sometimes you're hot. Sometimes you're feeling more solid. Sometimes you're feeling more spacious. I said, look at this body, bring mindfulness to your body and see that it's a whole bunch of parts. He made a list of 32 parts. He said this physical form, there's 32 parts. Now, if you know anatomy, you know that it's only a partial anatomy list. There's more than 32 parts of the body, but he, you know, he said there's skin and hair and um, there's teeth and there's nails and there's uh, bones. And then he named a bunch of the organs and lungs and liver and, um, you know, and, and then there's... Um, you know, there's intestines and there's bowels and there's black, you know, kind of, of meditating on the body and all of its parts and the anatomy, the physical form. And then in the instructions, the way that it's translated and offered, he says, now that you're mindful in your body of the impermanent nature of breath, of sensation, of the four elements of the 32 parts, now meditate on the body itself as subject to impermanence to death, to decay, and turn towards it and really become intimate with your own impermanence, with your own death, the reality that this body that's so much alive, each breath is telling us, I'm still alive, I'm breathing. Eventually we'll stop breathing. And that's not maybe, it's not if, it's when, of course, it's death is certain. The time of death, when we're going to die, how we're going to die is uncertain. So I want to talk a bit more about death and some of the other ways that the Buddha taught about it, but I want to meditate on this, what comes in the first foundation, which is considered you know, a necessary foundational meditation practice. If you want to get free from attachments to life, you have to make friends with death to acknowledge it. Denial is not a good strategy. Avoidance, um, distraction, not a good strategy, but turning towards as all of what we're doing in Buddhist practice is like, let's look at it directly. Let's investigate it. So this is a meditation on investigating death. And of course, if you know mindfulness, it's also you would apply the second foundation as I'm giving the instructions and watch how maybe it's unpleasant. And you'd say like, okay, unpleasant feelings, aversion to this. I don't, you know, fear of this, uh, the emotions that come up. Or you might see, oh, there's joy in this. Like, oh, death, what a fucking relief. Can't wait to get rid of this meat body that I have to carry around. And some of us sincerely have that sort of 
suicidal nihilism feeling about death. Um, and of course, it's easier to have that feeling when you're healthy and not dying than when you're actually faced with it. Enough set up, let's meditate. And so that you know, I'm not just trying to gross you out. I am going to read some of the direct, most of the instructions I'm gonna give are gonna be the direct translation from the Buddha on how to meditate on the corpse. Sometimes it's called a cemetery meditation, charnel ground cemetery. So find a way to sit. You can be comfortable. If you really want to be weird, you could lay down, take Shavasana and just like be a corpse. So that, you know, you could do that if you want to, but however you feel like being. And as you're ready, allowing your eyes to close. Settling in for the first few minutes, just into present time awareness, mindfulness of the breath. Mindfulness of all of the sensations that let you know you're alive. Awareness of the impermanent nature of each breath coming and going. And even as your mind wanders in thoughts, plans, memories, fears, worries, even those thoughts are impermanent, arising, passing through the mind.
contemplating the four elements in your body? In what way do you feel the earth element? Perhaps your connection to the chair, the cushion. Awareness of the bones, the skeleton of this body. Feeling the air element both with the breath as it enters and exits, as it oxygenates the body, the blood that's pumping through the heart, the veins and arteries, every part of your body. And the water element, mindfulness that this water, this body is a majority water. Almost three quarters of our body is fluid. Feeling the fire, heat, temperature. And the Buddha says, and further, just as if you were looking at a corpse thrown on a charnel ground, one or two or three days dead, swollen up, blue-black in color, full of corruption, so one regards one's own body. This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. Just as if you were looking at a corpse laying out in the open, one, two or three days dead, swollen up, blue, black in color. One regards our own body, this body of mine, also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. Spending a couple minutes with this visualization of the corpse, lifeless, no longer having the fire, the heat element, no longer having the air element, 
not breathing, not warm. As we reflect to ourselves, this body of mine that is so much alive right now has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. As you're doing the corpse reflections, also bring mindfulness to the feeling tones of emotions that are arising, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant. Continue softening the belly, continuing the visualization. The Buddha goes on, he says, and further, just as if you were looking at a corpse thrown on the ground, eaten by crows, hawks or vultures eaten by dogs or jackals and devoured by all kinds of worms so we regard our own body this body of mine also has this nature has this destiny and cannot escape it eaten by vultures and jackals and dogs and worms. This natural cycle of life and death. Decay. And if this form of the four elements that we call our body was left out, it would begin to break down and likely be consumed by other living beings. This body of mine has this nature, has this destiny, and cannot escape it. And further, just as if you were looking at a corpse thrown on a charnel ground, just a framework of bones, flesh hanging from it, bespattered with blood held together by the sinews, this body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. 
when the elements leave. No more water, no more heat. And even the earth element starts to break down. Furthermore, a framework of bones without flesh and blood, still held together by the sinews, just the whole skeleton. Visualizing just the bones of a body. The ribs and the vertebrae and the skull, the hands and the feet and the pelvis and thigh bones. Held together, but no flesh, no blood. This body of mind that has, has also has this nature, has this destiny, and cannot escape it. Furthermore, Bones disconnected and scattered in all directions. Here, a bone of the hand. There, a bone of the foot. There, a shin bone, a thigh bone, a pelvis, a spine, a skull, and so on. So, we regard our own body. This body of mine also has this nature has this destiny and cannot escape it. As if we were looking at bones lying on the charnel ground, bleached and resembling shells, or bones heaped together after the lapse of years, bones weathered and crumbled to dust. And so we regard our own body, this body of mine, has this nature, has this destiny, and cannot escape it. I think it's important information for us, even what our mind does with this meditation. Are we able to stay with it or we do we float off into other fantasies, plans, memories? Thus we dwell in contemplation of the body, either regarding our own person or other people or both. We understand how the body arises, how it passes away. The arising and passing away of the body. A body is here. This is clear awareness and to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness. And one lives independent, unattached to anything of the world. Thus does the 
meditate or dwell in contemplation of the body. I invite you to just return to present time awareness of this very much alive body that is subject to sickness and aging and death. But at the moment has all the signs of vitality, sensations, emotions. and appreciate each breath. Let this reflection on death lead towards a feeling of preciousness, of appreciation.
was a time just thinking of some of the ways that the Buddha talked about death. And as you see from the um, meditation instructions, the cultural norm of India and ancient India is so much different than ours. Like the charnel ground doesn't exist in our culture. Uh, you're not going to probably have a time, uh, you know, in your life as they continue to this day in India. But, um, you know, when he's talking about 2,600 years ago, it was pretty normal to walk past a, a, a graveyard, which is just bodies decaying, you know, maybe being burned. If you have the money in traditional Indian society, there's a funeral pyre and your body is cremated out and open. And... Um, uh, but if you don't have enough money, your body's just there and it just decays. And this guided meditation is pretty accurate on some level of like, yeah, if, if we didn't do what we do in our culture, where either you uh, cremate it and make sure that it's all the way burnt real quick in a extra hot oven, or you uh, embalm it and dress it up and make it look a asleep, the body, you fill it with embalming fluid and, and preserve it so strange like it's fucking weird that we do that in this culture and it's right it's it's christian um it's it's for the what's it called when the when jesus comes and the body's raised to heaven or the rapture right it's all this sort of like rapture thing of like preserve the bodies because they're not going to stay in the ground um and you know when you when the rapture comes and you, you go up you want to be looking somewhat not that decayed um, but the cultural norm of seeing death and death being out in the open and and bodies the impermanence of the body and the decay and the you know, and the, that images of like, yeah, and the dogs are going to eat the body and the jackals and the worm and the you know birds and the ravens and the, um, which to us, like, it's kind of, I think in our culture, it's like, oh, that's kind of gross, like reality, because we've been, uh, we've denied it. We've, we've uh, pushed it. So we've sanitized it and hidden it and you know, dressed it up and put it in airtight boxes and lowered it in a ceremonial grandma's going to heaven thing that our culture has done. And, and it leads to more and more personal denial rather than what the Buddha is encouraging us to, which is like break, you know, stop avoiding it, turn towards it, reflect on it, meditate on it. I am not exempt from this reality. Uh, and even when we do those airtight caskets with embalming fluid, it just protects you for another hundred years or something, and then the worms get you anyways. Um, but uh, if the rapture doesn't come in the next 50 years, you're fucked. Your body's worm food. There's a time where a grieving mother comes to the Buddha whose child has died and she uh, is, is told that there's an enlightened master teaching nearby and she's holding the corpse of her child and she comes to the Buddha and she says, you know, my child has died and can you please 
bring him back to life. You are an enlightened master and I know you have powers and can you please save me my child, bring him back to life. And the Buddha says, I'm can't do that. I don't have, I don't have powers. I'm, I don't suffer. I have compassion. I have wisdom. Um, I developed that through my own meditation practice. I can teach you how to do that, but I can't bring anybody back to life. I'm not, I'm, I can't do that. And she says, please, please, I know you can, I know you can. And she won't take no for an answer and kind of that, uh, you know, out of your mind. If you, you can just imagine uh, as a parent or not a parent, just the kind of mind-breaking grief of losing a child. And, and he finally says to her, he says, he says, go into town and go door to door and, um, find a home in town that has not known any death find a home that hasn't had a child die or a parent die or a grandparent die and from that home that hasn't known any death uh, get a mustard seed and then bring that mustard seed back to me and i'll bring your child back to life uh, and so she you know it's just this sort of teaching story when she goes to town and she every door nope we've known death we've grandma's died our father's died we also lost a child um and you know through that process she wakes up to like oh this is everyone every single person that i've talked to has known death not necessarily the tragedy of a child but of death everyone's known death every nobody uh, doesn't face loss and death and grief and she returns to the buddha and, and you know says thank you for the teaching oh, uh, even though uh, it feels so much more i i feel like this so much more tragic when a young person dies than an old person old people dying feels natural feels normal still you know still sad when grandma or grandpa dies and you know but it feels like yeah it's sort of natural cycle but when somebody young dies it feels like wait this this doesn't feel right. And this idea that a long life is success, right? That we're supposed to live as long as possible, old age. That's like a successful life. Don't die. One of the things that Buddhism teaches that helps me a little bit get my mind around this and have less attachment to my view that children shouldn't die or that long life is a you know that's what we're supposed to do here that's you know that um as there's a, the buddha says there's four levels of enlightenment he says there's the level of enlightenment where you become a stream enterer which means you only have seven incarnations left so you're gonna have to take birth and then die and take birth and seven more times and then you'll be a buddha <laughs> then you'll be an arahant you'll enter the deathless but he doesn't say how long those lifetimes have to be you know it doesn't say you have to have seven long 80 plus year incarnations he just says you have to be born seven times born and die seven times and then he says there's a, a level of awakening that is called a, a once returner so it means that in this lifetime, you've purified almost all of your karma. You've done the work, you've created the compassion, the kindness, the generosity, the, the wisdom in this lifetime. You're almost done, but not quite done. 
you got a little bit of karma left to purify. So you got to take, you got to return one time, once returner. You got to come back and you got to do one more incarnation. But again, it doesn't say it has to be a long incarnation. And our idea, I don't know if you do, maybe it's mine, but I feel like there's a cultural idea that long life is success and that a short life is failure. Now, I feel like part of what's being said here is that maybe actually you live as long as the karma that you need to burn off. And that actually a long life maybe means you didn't get done and you have all of this karma that you have to live a really long life and be old and decrepit and smell like soup. <laughs> As though that's success rather than like maybe, and I'm talking a little bit of shit here, but maybe like us just reflecting on our conditioning that long life is the goal. And that, you know, because we all know death is natural and the body only, you know, can live only so long. But our idea that dying young is, is tragic or in the middle or, you know, so young, my friend that died was in his 50s, like, you know, seems like pretty old to me, you know, on some level. But being in my 50s myself, I'm like, you know, so young. <laughs> And then this whole like life expectancy, like our life expectancy a hundred years ago was like 50. Like you weren't gonna live more than 50 years, most likely, 60 maybe. And now it's like 70, 80. And if it's below the life expectancy, it's like, oh, what, you know, failure of Western medicine, failure. <laughs> you know, they died in their 50s. They died in their 40s or 20s or 30s or so there's the that once returner and so i might be i'm a little skeptical of my own interpretation here because it comforts me that maybe people who die young only had that much karma to burn off so it might be true but also i'm skeptical of anything that comforts me especially the religious or spiritual teachings that feel a little too oh that feels better that helps me make sense of death Rather than, I feel like a lot of what we're being asked to do in uh, the Dharma is to actually allow the carpet to be pulled out and to feel a bit insecure and not know and not be so comfortable around it. To be at ease with the unease rather than using spiritual or religious or even, even Buddhist uh, teachings to make us feel more comfortable or relaxed. Even the stuff around reincarnation. I don't know. Some of you like it, right? I'm like, yeah, that's comforting. You don't really die. That's partly what's being said there. Your body dies, but you don't really die. You continue. You, your soul, your spirit, your karma continues. And some of us are like, that sounds cool, right? Like, that's comforting. Then it's not a real loss. We lost the body, but not the essence. You know, they continued. And then, you know, for yourself, do you, do you like it? Does it make you like that death isn't the end? Was that comforting for you? Is it comforting for you about your loved ones? 
Or is it kind of piss you off? Of like, fuck that. I got to keep, like the Buddha was like that. I don't like it. I don't want to keep coming back. I want to, isn't there a way out of this cycle of birth and sickness and aging and death and birth and sickness and aging and death? He felt like reincarnation. He's like, I don't want to keep coming back. I want to be liberated from this cycle of rebirth. I want to wake up to that part of me that's not attached, that's not going to keep coming back to this realm where there's so much joy, but there's also so much sorrow. And your body is going to get eaten by worms over and over and over and over. The, um, five daily reflections I find kind of traditional Buddhist daily reflections where we're encouraged to reflect daily and, you know, every day to, and consider doing this, bringing it into your daily meditation practices. Where we, it's a little bit similar to this corpse where we say, you know, this body is uh, subject to uh, aging. I am not exempt from aging. It's the body's nature to age. I'm not exempt from it. I'm subject to illness. I'm not exempt. It's this body's nature to become injured, to become ill, to become decrepit. Uh, I'm not exempt from illnesses and injuries and And to reflect on that, even when you're feeling healthy and vibrant and, you know, just to keep uh, aging and illness in your awareness. And death is this body's nature. I'm not exempt from death. And as it said in that refrain at the end of the mindfulness, we can do this both for ourselves and for all of our loved ones and for each other. Just as I'm not exempt from aging and sickness and death, my children aren't exempt from aging and sickness and death. My friends are not exempt from aging and sickness and death. My parents, my, you know, this universal. But rather than it being a sort of something we don't think about and don't talk about, bringing it into awareness every day. Not exempt from sickness, aging, and death. The last two are, um, again, it's all about impermanence, the impermanence of the body, anicca. The last two are um, everything that I cling to, I will be separated from. Everything that I hold near and dear that I'm attached to will end in loss. Just reality, you know, like, and you know that, we all know that, but reminding ourselves, because sometimes we get so, we want security, we want, uh, we want to think we get to keep. And hopefully, you know, there, you can have this understanding of impermanence and still be like, I, I, you know, for as long as possible, I want to stay in this relationship. I want to have healthy uh, interactions, community, whatever it is. 
So it's not a sort of resistance or an aversion to it. It's just an acknowledgement that everything that I cling to because of the reality of impermanence and death will end in loss. I don't get to keep any of the stuff, none of the material things. Think of your favorite stuff. You don't get to keep it. <laughs> your favorite people. You don't get to keep them. You die first, they die first. My father who did, I grew up around death and dying and hospice and my dad read all these cool books about death and dying and, and, and about relationship too. And in my father's relationship book, he said something that I hadn't heard anybody else say. He said in, in the deepest, uh, he said perhaps in the deepest loving relationship, you would actually want your partner to die first. Wait, is that right? <laughs> yes, you'd want your partner to die first so that they wouldn't have to grieve your loss, which is a, sort of a mind fuck, right? I love you. I hope you die first. I hope you die before me. Which, but it makes sense, right? It's like, because one of us has to go first. And, and I'm, it's a, this act of generosity, rather than you having to grieve my death, I'm willing to grieve yours. Because that's, even in happily ever after, eventually one of us has to grieve for each other. In every friendship, in every relationship, and it's a reality. The last reflection, so sickness, aging, death, loss. And then he says, reflect every day, say to yourself, remind yourself, my only true possession, my only, the only thing I actually own is my karma. Not my car, not my motorcycle, not my children, not my relationships, not my stuff, not my status, money, any of that shit. I don't, what I really, because at death, I'm separated from all of it. But you know what you're not separated from death from a Buddhist perspective? Your karma. You take that shit with you. It's your only true possession. At the end, all we have is how we've behaved. And whether that's into reincarnation or it's just how we feel about ourselves on our deathbed, how did I show up? How much integrity did I, did I have in this lifetime? How kind was I? How generous? How compassionate? How friendly? How loving was I in this lifetime? That's your karma. How you feel about yourself, how other people feel about you when you die. That's your karma. The actions that you've done in this life and the outcome of those actions. Somebody asked me earlier if I believed in reincarnation. Um, and I said, I, you know, I'm, pretty, I'm a little agnostic about it. The Buddha believed in it. He taught it. Um, 
I'm a little bit of a rationalist and practical. I love Buddhism because it's so practical. Mindfulness works like this. I've experienced it directly. Forgiveness, compassion, generosity, like understanding impermanence, like it all, like it's so practical. It's why I like Buddhism. And then we start to talk about death and reincarnation. And I'm like, I don't fucking know because I don't remember experiencing it yet. <laughs> so, but where I land in the, not atheists, right? There's some people that just say, I don't believe it. One of my teachers, uh, Stephen Batchelor, after like 40 years practicing Buddhism, he said, I'm just an atheist about reincarnation. I don't believe it. Set it aside. Okay. For me, I feel more like agnostic. Like, I don't know if, we, if that's true or not. But what I do have is a tremendous amount of faith and verified faith in what the Buddha hasn't steered me wrong yet. He was right about the rest of this Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path and how it's going to play out in my life and in our lives. And he said also death isn't the end and that there's a cycle here of rebirth and that you might have seven lifetimes or you might have one lifetime or you might finish in this lifetime. And so I land in a kind of agnostic stance around it personally rather than deciding I know better than him or that... I think what Bachelor did was he just decided to make it so that the Buddha didn't really say that. That was the shit that other people said after the Buddha, or it was the Hindu shit that snuck its way back into Buddhism. Or My sense is that it seems pretty clear that it's what the Buddha taught. I'm also open to the Buddha being wrong. But there's that, there's that um, thing, uh, I forget the name of it, where whether it's true or it's not true, it won't really change. It doesn't actually matter. And you get to look at that for yourself. Would you live your life any differently if there was reincarnation for sure? Like if you had total proof, would you live your life differently than you are? If you know for sure that you have a karma savings alone account <laughs> and if you're overdrawn, you come back. And if you have a, you know, if you have any balance, you know, if you, if you're not purified, if you haven't balanced your karma checkbook, you come, would you live your life differently? Would you do more service? Would you do more forgiveness? Or the flip side, if you knew for sure, that's it lights out this lifetime, no afterlife, no reincarnation, worm food only would you live your life any differently would you be less kind to people would you be less generous would you be more selfish or violent or right like hopefully we come to a place where it doesn't fucking matter that we're living our life for the benefits that we're receiving now of being a good person not for some afterlife, not for some reincarnation, but for the practical benefits of what it's like to be kind and generous and compassionate and forgiving and to not suffer in this lifetime, whether there's something after or not. Some of my thoughts about death. Um, you know, I land a little bit more on the 
suicidal nihilist side of things myself and always have. Some of you know, I've talked about, you know, I had a kind of suicidal ideation from a young age and felt like death would be a relief. And I also believed in reincarnation. And that really changed for me over the years of coming into recovery and um, having a life worth living and feeling like I had could be of benefit to others, like it was actually important for me to hang around to be of service and to the Sangha and uh, seeing that actually with my recovery, I helped other people recover and uh, the way that the Dharma worked in my life, I was able to share the Dharma. It became more and more important for me to try to hang around and not be so quick to uh, take refuge in the impermanence of life and death. And then especially when I had kids, you know, as, as a parent, I feel like more attached to existence than I did before I was a parent. I still have some high-risk, novelty-seeking, uh, dangerous behaviors. Um, you know, I, I did jump out of an airplane with Jason on his birthday a couple weeks ago. And I was sort of thinking as I was jumping out of this airplane, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 50 and I'm a father and I'm jumping out of an airplane. Um, but I'll probably do it again. We did have um, parachutes and everything. So I want to open it to some conversation, comments, questions. If you're at home and you have a comment, a question, an experience, uh, either with the meditation or uh, your relationship to death, you can raise your hand in your screen or if you're here, you want to discuss it, please, Juan. I was reading about the um, four levels of, uh, I guess, insight or It's really hard to earn merit as a squirrel. You yeah. don't even know what merit is. Yeah. Uh, someone, a teacher told me that she gives merit, she devotes, she devotes a portion of the merit of her practice to her dog because a dog is less capable yeah. of making it into another life. Any thoughts on that? It seems like you're, you're, being, you know, you're coming back into this. I, um, I've mostly, I have a couple of thoughts. One is I've mostly thought of this as the way that it's taught 
that there's not any risk. Actually, one one lifetime period. You're not coming into like, and you might fuck it up. You got one lifetime, and it might. I, that's that's where I've sort of like maybe that's why people die young because they don't have that much karma to burn off. You know, it's one of the ways that I've thought about it that way. But I've thought about it as guaranteed. That the way that I've heard the teachings is that one more lifetime doesn't have to be a long lifetime. Could even maybe you don't even have to take birth. Maybe it's like you know I was talking about the woman that I heard whose child died um, in the womb. Um, maybe that was a you know once returner didn't even have to take birth. Just had a little bit of karma. That was it. Done from that perspective. Uh, the seven incarnations, again, guaranteed within. And I don't think you have to do all seven, but that it's within. Now, I know that the traditional Buddhist view is that animals are a lower life form, but I'll tell you what, some of these dogs <laughs> and cats, and we were at my friend Joe's the other day and they had a baby squirrel that had fallen out of the tree and they were bottle feeding it. And it was a, that's a pretty good fucking incarnation for some of these. Now you can't say dogs are a great incarnation because the domesticated American house dog might be having a pretty, but you know, in a lot of the world, in India and a lot of the rest of the world, it's, it's a pretty, it's a lot of suffering for a lot of the dogs that are street dogs, right? That aren't being pampered the way that most of us pamper our, you know, dogs. Um, so I don't know, I, I question it. I know there's the traditional that says humans are the highest sort of, it's the most in appropriate incarnation for us where we can um, actually meditate and develop the merit and do the service. And, uh, but maybe if you did all of the, I'm, I'm totally open to this. Maybe you did all of the work in your last lifetime and you just get to be a dog for a couple incarnations with like really killer owners. <laughs> And they're just going to feed you and pet you and clean up your shit. Yeah. Got to do like five incarnations as a dog. Not that bad. <laughs> Depending on who your owner is, right? Depending on what, you know, kind of who, uh, whose home you incarnate into. Um, where I'm familiar with that is that when the Buddha is asked, what's nirvana? He says, okay, enlightenment, it's nirvana. It's a realm of not suffering. It's, um, it's not, you know, it's not like heaven. It's not like he's like, and he uses that. It's the tr translation is there is neither existence nor non-existence. There's neither consciousness nor a lack of consciousness. Um, and my sense is that the Buddha is trying to break our attachment to a self that is going somewhere. And so he's saying it's neither you going to heaven nor you not going to heaven. It's neither existence nor not existence. <laughs> Don't be attached and just sort of like 
trust the process, know, it, know that what it is, it's the absence of suffering. But there's not necessarily a self that is not suffering, nor a lack of self that's not suffering. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You'd have to ask somebody more skilled in the kind of translations, and I, I don't, I don't fully have my mind around it either. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go to an online question from Declan. Hey, thanks. On one of the older um, podcasts, the speaker from against the stream mentioned that suicidal ideation could also be considered a desire to drink or use it again. And I thought that was interesting. And I was curious if you could say anything else about the idea of uh, accepting the suicidal ideation or letting go of it. Was that you that said that, Jason? <laughs> I don't totally know the context of it. Um, you know, I because I've been suicidal most of my life and ideation, I just think it's sort of normal uh, and sort of think, does, doesn't everybody's mind tell them, like, you should kill yourself sometimes? And I guess not. I guess, I guess not. I don't know. I, I have a, a little bit of a suspicion that people are just deny in denial of the fact that their mind sometimes says, you know, you could just take a left off this bridge right now. Um, I don't know, my mind has done that my whole life. So my experience, Declan, is to just accept it and to just see it like the rest of the bullshit that my mind does, which used to be tell me to drink and use and steal and lie and cheat and kill myself. and. Uh, and just put it in that kind of Mara advice of my, uh, you know, confused mind uh, and sort of accept it more than try to get rid of it. You know, I, I put, I'd put the suicidal ideation firmly in the Mara category. And it's that part of our mind that's trying to sabotage our happiness, that's trying to kill us. Not everybody has it as, apparently, not everybody has it as suicidal ideation, but everybody has it as judgment and comparing and insecurity and craving. And to one extent or another, we all have it. Um, and the Buddha said, even enlightenment didn't get rid of it for him. He said, even when I was a fully awakened being, my mind kept attacking with uh, doubt and with craving and with aversion and he said, but I just understood that it wasn't personal. It's just part of what this human mind does. It judges and it craves. And, and he said, I just, I see you, Mara. So suicidal ideation, crave, craving for non-existence, whether that's the non-existence of the drink or the needle or the death is craving for non-existence. And just put it in that kind of, that's normal to have that, but I certainly shouldn't obey it. I shouldn't, certainly shouldn't. Uh, you know, let it um, push me in, you know, take its bad advice. 
let's say, oh, I see you, Mara, the saboteur of our own mind that we all have on one level or another. And sometimes it says you should kill yourself, and sometimes it says you should smoke a joint to not exist in this way right now. Please. What do you think about the concept of suicidal ideation being an actual death of perhaps what you're going through now? You have to sort of, it's hopelessness and it's a change in your, in your mind that you have to have something new or that you go for in the sense of that you have to kill a part of yourself, not your body, but yourself, because it is sort of mm -hmm. like, like a snake chest. Right. There's some some metamorphosis or evolution or something that needs to happen. That's how I've yeah. sort of tried to cope with it myself. Right. Like, okay, there's something here that's hopelessness. It's that I, I have to I have to see this what it is. It's, I have to, you know, if you're doing the same thing, you know, if you can't expect different results, yeah. you have to be changed and changed to you. Is it the death of a different part of you in order to move forward? Yeah. I like it. I mean, I haven't thought about it in that way, but um, it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds good. And also, like, if that is what's working for you and has been your experience, then you just trust that. And yeah. Welcome. Please, Ryan. Don't look over there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when I was talking about the hindrances, I think it was last week, where the you know where the mind like will put you to sleep. Was that last week that I talked about the hindrances? Where you, I think you were here, right? And like the poppy fields, where it's like, oh, I don't want to look at this. I'm just drowsy, or you know, I'm just off in some story about the pretty natural. Again, part of that Mara saboteur, that part of us is like, oh, I don't want to see the truth. I'd rather be comfortable than awake. And that's a big decision, like, that the Dharma is asking us to make. Like, if you want to be comfortable, you're in the wrong tradition. Like, we're looking at death. We're looking at impermanence. We're looking at uh, the shit that's going to make you so uncomfortable that then you'll get to the place where nothing can make you uncomfortable because you've faced it all and you'll be at ease with everything. The other avoidance, let's turn away from it, let's pretend, then there's a whole bunch of shit that you're going to be uncomfortable in this situation and that situation and not only have the normal grief of loss when loved ones, friends die, but that extra neurotic grief of it shouldn't be this way rather than the acceptance of like, yep, death is natural and normal and, and tragic and sad and worthy of grieving, but not that extra lever of, uh, of uh, I'm going to destroy my life about it. Barbie, last word. So when I'm in the feelings of allowing myself to cry and I'm sitting 
on the doorstep of death, um, you know, and really in it and facing it, but then like those little principles where I'm like, okay, now I'm attached to this emotion. So how do those go hand in hand or do they? I mean, I, I don't, because sometimes when I'm in it and I'm mourning, I'm like, oh, I'm so attached to the idea that I'm gonna lose this person and I'm attached to the emotional connection I have to this person. And then I try to reel it back and, and you know think about the impermanence of you know reincarnation and this isn't lights out, that's not what I believe. Um, so I struggle with that. Yeah. It's um, a dance, I think, of um, non-attachment, especially in the midst of uh, possibly terminal illness and, you know, the situation you're in with your child. And, um, you know, the ideal is like, well, I'm just going to stay fully present and feel it. And, and I can't fucking do that. And sometimes I disconnect and then I reconnect and then I you know, and then I reconnect and sometimes I get real attached and just like we're like, we're always doing this in our relationships, but even more so with our children. And especially if our children are sick, the way your kid has been is most of his life. And um, Ajahn Amarak, I gave my Dharma talk on this last week on compassion on this sentence where he said, don't try to help, but don't turn away. And I was translating a little bit of like, don't try to fix it but don't turn away that the compassion is the listening is the presence. And then there's also the humility of like, I can't not turn away. Sometimes I'm not there yet. You know, I still at times turn away. Like I get overwhelmed, I get flooded, but the intention is I keep trying to come back into that connection with the loved one and holding it and feeling it. And then I disengage and then I cling and I'm like, it shouldn't be like this. And then I, don't turn away, but don't, but understand, I can't fix it. Right. I think that's a huge part of just mm -hmm. learning how to hold space yeah. for him and for his suffering, knowing that I, I can't fix it. Yeah. But it is a dance. It is. I, yeah. I, I feel myself for that. No, I mean, and it's never more so than with our loved ones, with our children, with our, you know, there's that genetic, biological, you should suffer with them. <laughs> you know, and no matter how wise we become of like, I would love them, but I don't want, you know, and like there's the whole part of this chapter is like true compassion isn't feeling it with them. It's being, if you're suffering with them, it's not true compassion is what the Buddhist view is. It's like, that's, yes, I believe that's true, that actually you can be in total equanimity and serenity and care and listen, but it's fucking feels impossible when it's your kid, right? Or your partner or your uh, much easier when it's, there's a, a, a distance. So I had a friend, um, mutual friend of, of Juan and, and I's, uh, Melissa, I don't know if she's told you this story, but uh, Melissa, who's a meditation teacher, was a very serious meditator and going to Burma and doing long retreats with this Burmese monk that was like her teacher. And then at one point in her 30s or whatever, she came to her teacher and I'd, I'd known her already. And she went to her teacher and she said, I'm having a baby. 
and her Burmese monk teacher said, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> There's no hope for your enlightenment now. Which is fucked up. But I also get it. You know, like if we're trying to practice non-attachment and then you're going to give birth to something that you're going to try to be non-attached to, good luck. Good luck. I don't know if the Buddha really did this or not, but the Buddhist tradition uh, records that the Buddha's son is named Rahula. Rahula translates as shackle <laughs> or fetter or handcuff. I'd like you to meet my boy Shackle. <laughs> Sometimes we call him handcuff. Shackled to this world of suffering by the natural attachment that we feel to our children. Now, theoretically, it's not impossible as a parent to also get super fucking free. The Buddha got all the way free, even though he was a dad. Probably maybe easier for dads. <laughs> I don't know. But he got all the fucking way free. Maybe wasn't the best parent, but we won't get into <laughs> criticizing the Buddha right now, Kai K. Um, we'll do that next week. Thank you for your reflection, your uh, own investigation of this topic around death. And, and I encourage the five recollections. Just, in, you know, and if you don't have them, Google it. You'll find a whole bunch of five daily reflections and look at them. I'm, I'm not exempt from sickness. I'm not exempt from aging. I'm not exempt from death. Everything that I cling to, I'll lose. Remind yourself that. And my actions are my only true possession. Karma is the only thing I actually own in this life. Classes done by donation. Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization supported by the generosity of the people who attend both online and in person. Uh, our rent here is $3,500 a month. So your donations pay the rent. Please help me pay the rent. I was paying the rent by myself for a long time in this space. And the last few months, um, we've kind of crossed the line to where the Sangha is actually paying the rent. I'm not paying it myself anymore. So I hope that that will continue with your generosity. Um, consider becoming a monthly supporter of uh, giving 50 or $100 a month to the organization if you can. It is tax deductible if that's important to you. Um, and if you're just here for a drop-in class, we suggest 15 or $20 when you drop into class. But everyone's welcome. Even if you don't have anything to offer, you're still welcome here. Clearly not in it for the money, but there are expenses in order to continue to uh, offer the teachings in this way where everyone's welcome. So be as generous as you can be. There's a bowl for donations on the table and then also the Venmo and PayPal are written down there if you don't have cash to donate. Do I have to teach for you on Wednesday, Jason? Yeah. I do? 
Oh, I'm so tired though. <laughs> so, so tired. Um, I guess I'm teaching on Wednesday also this week. So um, if you uh, want to come and sit with me again this week, I'll be here. And also on, if you want to sit with me, you have to go to Jason's Zoom link uh, through the Against the Stream for the Wednesday night class. If you log into Jason's class this week, I'll be also teaching on Wednesday. So um, see you then. Man and goodness that comes from our shared practice be offered outward in all directions. May all beings develop wisdom and compassion and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.